seat. David Jackson is a professor, and he's an author of a popular-level commentary on the book of Job, which I've benefited from. And he went through an intense period of suffering in his life. And he writes this about this suffering. I discovered Job when I was sitting by my wife's hospital bed waiting for her to wake up after a miscarriage. We had prayed for this child's safety and salvation since before the child was conceived. We had prayed all that night that the child would survive the present crisis. The answer was no. I sat there looking out the window of the hospital at sunrise and I watched a bird fly across a cloudless sky as the sun rose. And I asked the Lord, how come that wretched bird could soar through such a sunrise and our child made in your image never see the light of day. If I could summarize what Jackson was feeling in three words, it would be this. That's not fair. How many times have we spoken or thought these words? That's not fair. I think often there is perhaps much in life that isn't fair. I think sometimes even some people can sort of live in a constant state of life a constant state of a life that that believes that life isn't fair. It's not fair that we lost the game because the referee made that bad call. Come on, ref! What we say. It's not fair that, that I am not as smart or beautiful or talented as my brother or sister or siblings. It's not fair that the rich prosper more and more and I don't. It's not fair. It's not fair that people in Sierra Leone suffer at the hands of a corrupt government. It's not fair that some children are born with cancer. It's not fair. 
Now, of course, it's easy. I know you've been there. I know you've said this to your kids, perhaps, or to others. When they get a smaller piece of the cake, life isn't fair, son. And the sooner you figure that out, the happier you will be. Yet, as true as that may be, deep down inside, you have a sense of right and wrong. You do. Everyone does. We all have a sense of justice. We know what that looks like in our minds. And what we see in the book of Job is a divinely inspired account of the intersection between justice and suffering. In a very real way, justice is at the heart of the book of Job. Why do I say this? Because Job feels, he feels in his heart that God has been unjust to him because he's suffering without cause. That's how Job feels. And Job's friends feel like God is being completely just to punish Job with suffering because they believe Job sinned. And Elihu, this new character we meet, he believes Job is unjustly misrepresenting God. He's unjustly misrepresenting God. Yes, justice in many ways is at the heart of the book of Job. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at the words of Elihu, who more than perhaps any other in the book of Job is concerned with justice, especially the justice of God. And his speeches, as we read, take up chapters 32 through 37. And in looking at these words, in looking at Elihu's words, I want us to consider what wisdom lessons we can learn. Like, that's the point. What wisdom lessons can we learn from the book of Job? Again, the book of Job is wisdom literature. It teaches us wisdom for life. And this time, particularly, what lessons can we learn as it relates to justice and suffering? So if you're not there already, please open with me again to, uh, to Luke. I've heard Luke from Pastor Jeff for so many weeks. To Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. This man, Elihu, is angry. His anger is repeated four times. Four times in just four verses. Look with me at chapter 32, verse 2. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned. 
Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Why is he angry? Well, he's angry because he believes God has been misrepresented by Job. Elihu's chief concern is God's justice. And therefore, Elihu, as a fourth friend, and and the way the book is put together, it sets him apart from these other three friends. His speech is not intermingled with the other three. It is set apart. And so he brings something, I would argue, different to the table. What is it? What is it? that he brings to the table? How is it different than his other three friends? Well, one commentator, Jones, helped me very to see this really clearly, and he says this, quote, the friends, that is the three friends, said that Job was suffering because he had sinned. Elihu says that Job had sinned because he was suffering. You see the difference? The friends say that Job is suffering because of his sin. Elihu says Job sinned. What did he do? He misrepresented God because he was suffering. Thus Elihu, he rebukes Job and he does it with two basic arguments. And these two basic arguments are going to lead for us to three basic lessons that I want us to take from this message. Two arguments with three basic lessons. First, Elihu rebukes Job for saying that God is silent in Job's suffering. And the argument has two parts. It has two parts to it. One, the first part is that God is not obligated to answer Job. God is not obligated to answer Job. And second, that God has indeed already answered Job. So let's first focus on the first part of the argument, that God is not obligated to answer Job. Let's focus on that. Elihu responds to Job by saying that God is not obligated to answer him, especially in his suffering. God's not obligated to answer anyone in their suffering. God is not subject to human reasoning and explanation. God owes no one an answer, he says. Look with me at his words of rebuke in chapter 32, verse 12. Actually, excuse me, chapter 33, verse 12. Chapter 33, verse 12. Elihu says, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, Job, 
For God is greater than men. Why, from, from man, why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? The implication is that God does not owe Job anything. He does not know him in he does not owe him an explanation or an apology. Now, I think Elihu's words are spot on. And here is, I think, this first lesson that we can learn from this book, from these words. And it's this. God does not owe you an explanation for your suffering. You know, we all need to be rebuked at times. <laughs> that is, we all need to have our thinking align with God's word and ways. You see, so often, it's been my experience and now your experience in your suffering, you want to know why. Why is this happening? In fact, as I said in a prior sermon, it's not so much that suffering that kills us, it's suffering without a purpose that kills us. We, we, we want to know why. But as we also learned in a prior message, God is sovereign over all the suffering in our lives. This means that he is in control. It also means that he has the right to do what he wants to do to fit his purposes for you and for me. But let me make something clear about this. It's not wrong to ask why. Many people in the scriptures do. We see it. You know who asked why in his suffering? Our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, remember his heart-wrenching words when he was on the cross? What did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not wrong to ask why. It's wrong to demand God to speak. It's wrong when you demand a reason from him. And how do you know when you're doing that? How do you know when you're demanding a reason for, from God? You become angry at him. You become bitter about how your life has turned out. You ever been there? You ever been there? I've been there. I know you've been there. If you're honest, you've been there. You've been angry and you've been bitter. But as Martin Luther wisely reminds us, quote, we should remember the lesson that Job learned. And here is the lesson. No one can summon God into court to account for what he does or allows to happen. I think we need to remember that. I think we need to get a hold of that. There's a second lesson, though, we can learn that shapes our view and understanding of suffering, and it's this. Lesson two, God speaks in your suffering. If only you have ears to hear. 
I want you to notice that that not only does Elihu rebuke Job by saying that God is not obligated to answer you, Job. He's not obligated to give you an answer. He's not obligated to give you an explanation. But Elihu also rebukes Job for failing to hear God. For God has already spoken to Job. God has not remained silent. Look what Elihu says in chapter 33, verse 14. He says, indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. How has God spoken? How has he spoken to Job? There are basic three ways, three basic ways that Elihu says God has spoken to Job in his suffering. God speaks through dreams and visions. Job chapter 33, 15 and 16. He speaks through angels and people, Job 33, 23, and 24. And he speaks through suffering itself, Job 33, 19. Now, we're not Old Testament people. We're not Old Covenant people. So what does this mean for us today? God speaks in your suffering in at least three ways. In at least three ways. First, God speaks to you in suffering through his word. God speaks to you in your suffering through his word. I don't only mean the scriptures. Yes, he speaks through the scriptures, but God speaks to you through the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the opening words of the book of Hebrews. What does it say? It says, God after he had spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us how? In his son. That's how he's spoken to us. God's final revelation is Jesus Christ and the scriptures. This is his word to you in your suffering. It's why the book of Job was written. To give you wisdom in your suffering and in your pain. God speaks to you in your suffering through the word. Second, God speaks to you in your suffering through other people. God has given us pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. God has given us fellow believers who speak to one another with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another, and to speak the truth in love. God comforts you in all your affliction and suffering so that you will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which you have been comforted by God. God speaks to you through the church through the people of God as they apply the word to your life through the preaching, through counseling, through discipleship. And third and finally, God speaks to you through suffering itself. C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain, Lewis says, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. (laughs) 
is so true. Suffering, Lewis says, what does suffering do? Suffering gets your attention. It gets my attention. When you suffer, that's when you seek answers. That's when you see God. It's not during the good times. When everything's going well, you don't seek him. Typically. But when you experience pain and hardship and difficulty and conflict and all of that, all of that that we could summarize as suffering, it puts you in a position to be receptive, at least potentially to be receptive to what God has to say through his word and through his people. Friends, God is not silent. God is not silent. He has spoken in your suffering. Listen for his voice. Listen for his voice in these three ways. So the first argument that Elihu gives as a rebuke to Job is that God is not silent. God is not silent. Job, God does not owe you an answer, but in a very real way, God has already spoken to you. He has already answered you if you would only have ears to hear him. That's the first argument. The second main argument that that Elihu gives to Job, he's, he's rebuking Job, and this is perhaps the most important one that... Elihu is really focused on, and that is he confronts Job's insistence that God must be unjust. For Job, you remember, for Job, he is suffering unjustly because he's righteous, and only the unrighteous are the ones who suffer. It's not the unrighteous, not the righteous. Job, however, has argued, he's argued at great lengths, at great lengths that he is righteous and he doesn't deserve this suffering at all. In fact, Elihu, he correctly summarizes Job's arguments like this. Look at chapter 34, verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. Elihu, he's summarizing Job. He says, for Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And to rebut Job's false misrepresentation of God, Elihu argues that God is just. He is just in his character, and therefore just in his actions. Look at his words. I mean, we could point to many verses in these chapters, but I just want you to look at one verse, chapter 34, verse 12. Chapter 34, verse 12. Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. We could read on. We could go on 
Elihu, I think, masterfully vindicates God's justice. So here's the third lesson that we learn about suffering and justice, and it's this. This is, what, this is what Job needed to learn. It is this. God is just in all the suffering in your life. God is just in all the suffering in your life. I already said, we already learned, right? We already learned in a prior sermon that, that God is sovereign over all the suffering in your life. He's sovereign. He, he's, he's powerful, over all of it. Now God is just in all the suffering in your life. But as the old problem of evil would have it, God may be all powerful, but he cannot be all just and good at the same time. But you know the Bible doesn't communicate that this is a problem. This is not a problem for the Bible. The Bible presents a God who is simultaneously powerful, sovereign, he's good, and he's just all at the same time and in your suffering. Think about it. Think about it with me. If he were just, righteous, if God were just and righteous but not powerful, if he were just and righteous but not powerful, how could we have any hope that justice could prevail in the universe? There would be no hope for that. He's all righteous and just, but he doesn't have the power to carry it out. Or, conversely, if he were all powerful but not just, how cruel and horrible the universe would be a zillion times worse than it is right now. And I love what the second century pastor Irenaeus said. This is so good. Quote, justice without goodness is not just. And goodness without justice is not good. So the true God must be, must be both good and just. More importantly, more importantly for us, why does this matter? Why does this matter? This matters a great deal because of how I began. You see, we are hardwired. We are hardwired for justice. We know, we, 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 we speak out, we, we act out when something that we perceive is unjust has taken place. We all have a sense of right and wrong. I mean, no one has to teach their kids about justice. They instinctively know it from the very beginning when a toy is ripped from their hands. They know what to do. Therefore, it's no wonder, brothers and sisters, it's no wonder that our culture right now, perhaps more than any other, our culture is starving for justice. 
I mean, we, just, we just have to think about all of, the, all of the movements happening around justice. A few weeks ago, I listened to some of the um, Senate hearings. I enjoy this kind of thing, the Senate hearings for the new Supreme Court justice. And they asked her many questions to determine if she would be just in her decisions. Just take one hot-button issue, abortion. One side argues that it's not fair for the unborn to have no choice or voice. The other side argues that it's not fair for a woman to have no voice or choice. One side wants the right to life. The other side wants the right to abortion. The point is that each side wants rights. Each side wants justice. We can multiply examples. We can multiply them here this morning. But I don't want us to think about the world out there. Let's think about your own life and the suffering in your life. Why has God allowed the strife and the turmoil and the pain? And since he has, does it mean he is not just? That's a challenging question. It's a deep, heart-searching question. And my answer to this question is the answer Elihu gives Job. See, we may never know why. From a human perspective, life doesn't always add up the way it should. You know that. But God's ways, God's ways are higher than our ways. Here's how Elihu put this to Job. Chapter 35, verse 2. Look at chapter 35, verse 2. Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say, Job, my righteousness is more than God's? You can't claim this? Are you more just than God? In fact, friends, all you and I can claim is that we are unrighteous. You and I have committed acts of injustice in this life. It's called sin. Sin is the definition of injustice. But, but, God is the definition of justice. He's the definition of it. Why? Why? Because you and I, we deserve to die and suffer eternally for our sins. We do. That's what we deserve. That's just. But God sent his only son, Jesus, to suffer in your place. So justice has been satisfied. You see, God is just. And not only that, 
He is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's how Elihu puts this in Job chapter 37, verse 23. Look at it as he closes. His closing remarks, Job 37, verse 23. He says, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. So what's the takeaway this morning? What's the takeaway for you and I? It's this. It's to put your trust and hope in Jesus in your suffering. Put it in the one who is completely just. We do not always see justice in this life, but as long as we cling by faith to God's justice, to the one who always does what is right, as long as we cling to him, I love what Calvin says, and he says it beautifully, as long as we are clinging to Christ, we can, quote, pour into his bosom the difficulties which torment us in order that he may loosen the knots that we cannot untie. Now, this doesn't mean that we abandon the legal system and that we leave it all to God. It means that we fight for justice on this earth as much as we can. And, and we trust God to loosen the knots that we cannot untie. I began the sermon this morning with this testimony of this brother, David Jackson, a man who suffered the loss of his child. And I want to conclude the sermon this morning by giving you the remainder of his testimony. Because he's spot on with the message And after asking the Lord why, and having that wrestling match with God in his heart, he says this, I opened my Bible to Job because I figured he might have something to say at a time like this of deep suffering. And I flipped through the pages to roughly the end of the book. I was looking for God's final speech to Job, and my eye fell on the questions. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? And then Jackson says, I sat and wept and remembered Job's words. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised.
Amen. Amen. Father,